welcome to the Fantasy Baseball Today podcast from CBS Sports. Got a fantasy question? Email fantasybaseball at cbsi.com. Get ready to win your league. Where Frank, Scott, Chris, and Adam. I'm not sure what it is, guys, but the sun is shining a little bit more today and the birds are chirping a little louder. Welcome back to Fantasy Baseball today. Frank Stample here with Scott White and Chris Towers. And it's starting to feel a little more real now that baseball is set to return. And I am pumped, fellas. We had an emergency podcast last night. We still kind of approached it with a level of skepticism. But I will say, as of now, Tuesday, June 23rd, when we're recording this, Things are looking pretty good, guys. I'm feeling pretty optimistic here. It won't be officially official until roughly 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Tuesday, June 23rd. We should keep that in mind, that given the way this whole thing has gone and given the level of acrimony between the two sides, let's not discount the possibility. Let's not. (laughs) Someone just decides to ruin this whole thing for us. But like you, I am operating under the assumption with – 99% 99% confidence that baseball will be returning in 32 days. I know Scott's ready. This guy looks like he just got signed uh, to a minor league deal by the Atlanta Braves. Scott, are you, yeah, will you be part an, of the expanded roster? Is that what we're looking at here? I mean, probably. I'm wearing a major league uniform. I'm not wearing the <laughs> Gwinnett Stripers uniform. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm very excited. This is a, a celebratory day. There are still a lot of doomers and gloomers and boomers out there <laughs> on the internet, but you know, they'll they'll warm up. They'll warm up in time. They, they'll listen to us. They'll they'll see our enthusiasm. They'll you know see photos of players working out, and they'll get excited all over again. So let's not let's not let them dampen our spirits. Absolutely. First of all, I want to welcome back any listeners and viewers to our Fantasy Baseball Today YouTube page. If you, if you haven't noticed, we have a Fantasy Baseball Today YouTube page where you can actually see Scott White in his Atlanta Braves gear. Uh, and you can see, I assume, David Bowie, who is Chris Towers' cat, probably going to attack him at some point. But if you left during the pandemic, we want to welcome you back to Fantasy Baseball Today and also want to thank everybody who stuck around over the past few months uh, with us. Here's the upcoming plan. Basically, here on the show, we're going to get you caught up on all the latest news, all the rumors, everything that I'm reading on the internet, and we're going to try and answer as many of your questions as we possibly can. Uh, We're going to give you the biggest winners and losers, basically, heading into this shortened season. We're going to try and compact everything we've talked about over these past couple of months in today's episode, from the Universal DH to injuries, players who are are returning from injury and and therefore have more value, uh, and also from a scheduling perspective, uh, although we don't know for sure what the divisions are going to look like. I think we have a good idea. Uh, And then once we get clarity later on today, Chris mentioned 5 p.m. That's when the player's uh, response is expected and everything seems good to go as of now. Uh, We will start our position previews later on this week uh, and that'll take us into the next couple of weeks. Then we'll get into our sleepers, breakouts, and busts. The usual deal, we'll do some mock draft review, uh, but just keeping you in the loop as to where we are here. Fantasy baseball today. All right, the latest news. Catching people up, guys. What I've seen from John Heyman is that extra inning games will use the runner on second on second base rule to expedite extra inning games in this condensed schedule. Uh, I also saw, according to John Heyman, that the Universal DH is expected to be part of this season in 2020, but will not be in 2021. This is to help preserve uh, player health, specifically pitchers in a shortened season um, so that they don't have to deal with trying to bet as a pitcher, of course, in the National League. Uh, and then Jim Bowden on our CBS Sports HQ said earlier today that he's just seeing positive reports that you know the players, uh, everything that they're supposed to respond to by 5 p.m. Uh, is, is accomplished by them. They will report by July 1st, which is eight days from today. And opening day would be Friday, July 24th. So that's the latest, guys. That's where we're at. It's a good place to be. Yeah, I've, I've basically every national beat writer I've seen has has expressed that same sentiment that this is going to get done. So, yeah, I think it's I think it's time to renew draft prep season here and get get ready for a fantasy baseball season. 
Speaking of draft prep season, Scott, I mentioned that we're going to try and answer as many questions as possible. I want to ask you this question first and foremost. If you drafted back in March, should your league be redrafting today? Should they? Um, Maybe not today, but you know, in the next no, coming today. weeks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, I hear you. I mean, you should draft if you're going to redraft, draft later. Yes, after managers have had a chance to weigh in and whatever. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of of the opinion that, like, in in terms of how individual player values have changed, it's it's not widespread, and. You know, I've 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 been pretty consistent about this. Where Scott, what? Yes, <laughs> the draft is the best part of the season. You're gonna get this weird short season that you didn't get to plan for. Players' values are changing. Not that yes. many, though. No, you've you've so, said yourself not that many are changing. This is no. This is my 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 official position on this because I, I didn't explain it well enough last night on Twitter, which is. That's what Twitter is. Um, you should not look at Christian Yelich versus Ronald Acuna and say, well, I think Christian Yelich is a more consistent player, or I think Ronald Acuna has higher highs and lower lows, so I'm going to play take Christian Yelich over Ronald Acuna in a short season. That shouldn't be part of your calculus. There may be players for whom that is true. I have no confidence in my ability to accurately predict which ones it will be and won't be true for. However, you should be adjusting players potentially quite a bit based on population groups. And, you know, what I mean by that is like something as big as all pitchers. I think all pitchers basically move down, but also then you kind of get little subgroups. You should move pitchers who were likely to have innings limits up. You should move NL pitchers down. You should move, you know, those, designated hitters in the NL up or just NL hitters in general up just because the addition of the DH might mean that everybody has more of an opportunity to play more games or a higher percentage of the game. So that, that's what I mean. I think the player pool uh, should look quite different. I mean, I think the, sh- yeah. the, the overall shape should look most of the same, but I do think, you know, when you're talking about a 275, uh, you know, player pool in a, in a regular 12 team league, you know, you start talking about some pretty significant changes that that I do think you want to account for. And just, it's a completely different landscape. You know, we, we didn't know we were drafting for 60 games. Yeah, but how good players actually are hasn't changed. And we, we've done a lot of mock drafts throughout this process anticipating a season with this sort of shape. And, and they don't look that different. They really don't. I, I mean, I kept... I kept going lighter on pitchers because I expected everyone else to, and they didn't. Scott, can't you argue, though, that, and some people are not going to want to redraft for this reason, that you might have gotten Justin Verlander at a discount at the time back in March or Mike Clevenger at a discount? Isn't that, you know, for the integrity of the league so everyone is on equal playing fields, shouldn't we redraft for that purpose as well? I mean, the thing that makes the draft the best part of fantasy for those who believe it is, is that there are stakes attached. So if you, if you remove the stakes, um, but you had stakes you attached. Had. You had stakes attached at the time. No. It's... And now you did, you were drafting as, if but now they... you have to, now you have to try to live up to that earlier standard. And that's just, that's not fun. That's misery. That's I... misery. That's, that's regret. That's that's all the worst things a person can feel rolled up into one. That does not sound like my idea of a good time. You are, uh, I think you're in the wild minority here. Okay. I just, Nonetheless, it's how I feel. I, I think having to do a draft again does not take away from the joy you felt in that moment. You know, it's better to have loved and lost than to never have loved at all. You still had that draft. You still enjoyed it in the process. And then you get another draft. No, I see. I executed my strategy the way I wanted to. And now there's a risk that other people have caught up to my strategy. And like, no, I don't want I don't want to do it again, especially in Dynasty Leagues. I think Dynasty League, sure. you're, asking, you're asking for people to quit the league if you try and make them. No, their- yeah, sure. no, I, you can't. No, we're talking about just 2020. 
Right, yeah, you can't redraft Dynasty Leagues. I agree with that. I mean, there's so many factors that go into play drafting for Dynasty anyway where you're focused more on the future more so than the season anyway. So I would agree with that. But redraft, I think the argument is there. And Chris, you brought something up that I was going to say for later on, but since you brought it up, let's talk about it now. You talked about boosting up those pitchers who were expected to be on innings limits who maybe are not going to go deep into games, but they will be really good on a per-inning basis. Obviously, Jesus Lozardo, uh, Julio Arias come to mind there. But I've seen some pushback to this idea on Twitter, and the main reason is that we know that the most important and the most unpredictable stat in fantasy baseball is wins. And sure. wins are most closely correlated with innings pitched per start. Sure. And if these pitchers are not expected to go deep into games... Shouldn't we, should we really be moving them up the board? Shouldn't we, I mean, I'm looking at the top 10 in innings pitch per game start last season. Verlander, Mike Miner, Shane Bieber, Garrett Cole, Jacob DeGrom, Max Scherzer, Steven Strasburg, Clayton Kershaw, Zach Greinke, Lance Lynn. Jesus Lazardo and Arias are not going to go more than five innings pitched all that often. At least I don't think so. So I think you're going to have to take it that's when you start to have to take things on a case-by-case basis. And you look at someone like Jesus Lazardo, who we think is going to be really good, but we don't know. Like we're pretty confident he's going to be very good, but we don't know how he's going to do against major league pitching. We don't know how, or against major league hitting. We don't know how he's going to hold up to pitching every five days regularly. And he's only thrown six innings and I start twice as a professional. That's one where, where I do think you can say, okay, maybe Jesus Lazardo won't throw the innings you need, but, He's sort of a a special case. You know, there aren't that many pitchers who reach the major league level, even in today's era, with the kind of workload limitations that Jesus Lazardo would seemingly have. You know, Luis Arias is kind of, he's a tough case to figure out because... Julio, Julio. Julio, no. Yes, Julio Arias. (laughs) I started typing Luis Arias as well. Uh, Julio Arias is a 23-year-old who made his major league debut at 2016, at in 2016 as a 19-year-old. So he was very much being treated with kid gloves back then. And then he's had a bunch of injuries over the last two seasons that have, that are the last three seasons before last year that have made it really hard to say one way or the other what his you know, ultimate workload would be. We've seen him throw 90 pitches in a major league game once last season, high 80s once, but is it because he couldn't? Is it because of the role the, the Dodgers wanted him to be in? These are really tough questions to answer. However, we, we should be more confident that Julio Rios can pitch at the major league level than, than Jesus Lazardo. Whether you think Jesus Lazardo has a higher upside, Julio Rios has proven that he can for, you know, I think it's like 180 innings now. So he doesn't have that question mark. The question mark for him is that workload one. It's a fair one, but yeah. I would be more inclined to move Lazardo down, especially because Lazardo was – Relative, I would be less inclined to move Lazardo up than Arias, but I still am inclined to move both of them up because of the because they're more likely to throw a higher percentage of team in team innings than they were before. However, that all being said, you're you know, the differences that we're talking about in likelihood of wins between someone who might average 6.2, like the best pitchers win about half their game you know, maybe two or three more. But at this point in Major League Baseball, 20 20 game winners are pretty rare. You're talking about, you know, guys who win 17 games out of 33 starts being among the league leaders. Well, you you shrink that to 12 starts, all of a sudden, you know, you're going to see these huge differences in value between a guy who wins four and a guy who wins six games. But actually predicting who might win that fourth, that, that extra marginal game, I think it's going to be really difficult to do. So as much as we ignore wins generally when looking at fantasy value, I think even in a short season that becomes more relevant just because it's so prone to randomness and the sample size is so much smaller. I do want to bring out something specific for Julio Arias, who I, I, I do, you know, I moved him up a long time ago, anticipating a short season, obviously. Um, but a, a, a unique concern for him, just given the Dodgers' surplus of major league-ready starting pitchers, uh, 
they were going to go with Arias and Alex Wood as their fourth and fifth starters heading into the season, but we were planning on usual Dodgers shenanigans, phantom IL stints, uh, maybe pitchers moving back and forth from rotation to bullpen, getting called up, sent down, that sort of thing. To To incorporate Dustin May, Tony Gonsolin at some point, maybe even Ross Stripling being part of a rotation. They're all going to be on the major league roster now. I mean, Stripling was probably going to be anyway. You got to assume May and Gonsolin with expanded rosters will be too. I think Kershaw is going to be fine. Bueller's going to be fine. Probably David Price is going to be fine. But Wood and Arias, I worry they're going to see like a piggyback situation with those other three with May, uh, Gonsolin, and Stripling, where like two of them are basically linked together and they both go four innings. That sort of thing. It's possible. The, the one the thing I will say is this is why you don't draft today. Yeah. Uh, like Scott said earlier, if you are going to redraft, you should wait until, you know, maybe Dave Roberts gets to summer training. and. But I don't think says, we'll no, know we, that. We want a five-man rotation. Yeah, but will he actually reveal that? Do you think he would actually reveal, hey, we plan to, you know, marry these two pitchers together? Like, we'll let Arias go three or four innings, and then we'll let Dustin May go three or four innings. I don't and think that they would. Wait, it's worth waiting and seeing right. if he does. Yeah. He might. He might. Yeah. yeah. We definitely don't know right now. We may not know in three weeks, but you know that it, it's more likely we will know something one way or the other. The Universal DH. I want to talk about some of the winners and losers with the Universal DH now in the National League. And I tweeted this out last night that, in my opinion, the biggest winners here were J.D. Davis, Dylan Carlson. Garrett Hampson, Austin Riley, Will Myers, Jay Bruce, Justin Smoke, and Ryan Braun, as well as Garrett Cooper and John Birdie of the Miami Marlins. Now, as much as I do like J.D. Davis and Scott, I know you love him too, there was some pushback because the Mets have a surplus. They still have Dom Smith. They have Cespedes if they want to try and find a way to get him involved. I just think J.D. Davis's bat is going to be so good that the Mets can't really afford to leave him out of the lineup. But then again, the Mets have done baffling things in the past, Scott. No, I mean, I read it much the same way you do. I I think of those three, Davis, Smith, and Cespedes, Davis was in line to play the most anyway, even without the DH. But now it's a virtual guarantee, I think. He'll be in the lineup every day. It doesn't mean... I mean, all three of them are winners. Um, But I'm, I'm more curious how they dispense playing time between Smith and Cespedes than, than Davis, who I think is just just probably going to play every day. I mean, he's he's their best hitter, right? And, mm, Who's better? Who am I missing? Like, I, I, I see the things about J.D. Davis that we like, and I, I agree that they are things to like about him, but like... Oh, I'm forgetting Alonzo and McNeil. Okay. I just forgot and, people. That's and funny. Michael Confort... Like, Jimmy Davis had a really good 453 plate appearances last season. Let's not like overstate the case. He was yeah. a 27 or 26 year old uh, making his debut. Brandon Nimmo was the Mets' best hitter two years ago, and we saw what happened in 2019. He couldn't stay healthy, but he also couldn't hit. So, yeah, lower confidence level. I think he's two years ago, but no, that's fine. Honestly, I just was trying to picture the Mets lineup, and I was blanking on who was in it. But so that's why I said he's I, their best hitter. I think the case, <laughs> the case is basically with it, when it comes to a guy like that or a guy like Austin Riley is if you believe he's going to hit the, the potential rewards are now even greater for that bet. You're, you know, especially with those late round guys, your Austin Riley's, your JD Davis's, your Justin smokes, they're low risk bets that, now carry even more reward potential because there's that opportunity that if J.D. Davis does hit like you think he does, or even if he's just a 280, you know, a 280 hitter with a 25 homer pace, that's still a starting caliber player who's probably going to play every day for the Mets. Justin Smoke, you know, I think he can be a 35 homer hitter with a 260 average. Those are guys who will be worth playing in fantasy. And that reward is now higher because if they do hit, they're going to play every day. The, you know, those situations will work themselves out. Yeah, it reminds me of, and I think 
he's just like a great example for the past couple of years is Jesus Aguilar, right? Where you just kind of trust the skills and take a player who you think is a very strong offensive player, but maybe you have some concerns over the playing time. Once he started hitting, he got himself into the Brewers lineup every single day. A couple of years ago, obviously, last year did yeah. not work out for Aguilar. I thought you were going the negative. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, but, that's, but that Aguilar. also works. If, yeah. if Jesus Aguilar went into last season with no concerns about playing time, but he couldn't hit. You know, it, ultimately, like, life tends to find a way. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's just the Mets. And sometimes teams just have too many guys and there's a log jam anyway. But mm-hmm. more often than not, the guy who hits is going yeah. to – or the guy who performs is going to be the guy who plays – and there are key places in the National League where I, I think you can uh, – one, one we haven't mentioned uh, who I think is kind of interesting is Steven Souza for the Cubs. You know, he was their basically only uh, significant addition this season, this offseason, which, you know, last year's only significant addition was Dan- Daniel Descalso, so it kind of tells you what the Cubs have been doing the last off, two offseasons. Uh, if he proves healthy, he was a – a viable fantasy option. And now he has the opportunity to play DH. So he's another guy uh, I am looking at. That's much more in a 15 team league. though. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what I want to touch on one point you mentioned there about uh, life finding a way, because one of the curious things about this season is there's not going to be time for sure. life to find a way. Um, and so that's why it's kind of even more critical. What managers are saying to the extent you can believe it. Yeah heading into the season. And so that's why, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm torn. I, I think it's obvious somebody like Dominic Smith's value goes up in this scenario. I think it's obvious somebody like Arist- Aristides Aquino's value goes up. You could make the argument Hampson and Sam Hilliard, their value goes up. But there are still, in those situations, there are still, you know, it's, it's not clear still yeah how consistent their playing time is going to be and at how soon will we find out enough to act on it yeah though i mean the fact that you mentioned two guys for the rockies as winners is yeah probably a pretty good uh, uh, indication that they're certainly not big winners that's just uh, so yeah. colorado it's so colorado too because they have Ian Desmond on the bench, which wouldn't right. surprise me if they try to get him in. And they're always hesitant to you know, give their younger players consistent playing time. We've seen that um, consistently throughout you know, the past couple of years yeah. with the Rockies. And you know, Hilliard is not necessarily young, but he's 26 years old. And Garrett yeah. Hampson is not even 26 years old. So we're hoping I'm, that I'm, they earn playing I'm, time. And obviously in I'm, Coors Field, that'll help us a ton in fantasy. Yeah. And I'm hopeful because at the end of last season, once Hilliard got called up, he was it was basically a strict lefty righty platoon with him and Desmond, with Desmond playing uh, less often. So yeah, I'm I'm hopeful that'll they'll just continue with that going forward. I mean, you'd still rather see everyday at bats from Hilliard, but in a five outfielder scenario, particularly if he's stealing bases, he'll have value. Who is your guy's uh, personal favorite in terms of winners at the, because of the universal dh i think the player who i probably would move up the most because obviously i was already really excited about jd davis uh it's probably will myers i'm with you I man just, yeah i just don't have any questions about his playing time anymore i don't have much interest in him in like a points league because he strikes out a lot but he also but walks in, a lot which helps yeah but i mean strikes out the strikeout rate is pretty yeah. exorbitant, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, the fact that even the last two years when his playing time was questionable, he continued to be a power speed threat. And so if he's doing that every day, I mean, he could, in a 60-game in a season, he could, he could maybe be approach, approach like 10 and 10, which <laughs> we're going to have to get used to saying numbers like that, I guess. But that, that's really good. That's like a double-double. A 27-27 pace, you know? Yeah, and, and that's the thing with Will Myers is even when he's been a disappointment over the last couple of seasons, you know, you look at that pace over the last two seasons and you stretch it out to a 600 plate appearances, it still comes out to like high 20s and steals, high 20s and home runs. So that skill hasn't deteriorated. There have been other deteriorations, and I think there's probably still a risk that the Padres find a way to dump uh, his contract. Well, I, that kind of stuff, you know, 
I guess, depends on each individual team's financial situation. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's still a chance he's not on the Padres on opening day, but if he is, I, I do agree. He, he wins a lot. I, Justin Smoke, someone I've talked a lot about. I think he was one of the most unlucky players in baseball last season. His stack has data was overwhelmingly excellent and the results were very not. So I think if he gets a little better, better luck playing half his games in Miller park, especially should help. Uh, and then Howie Kendrick, you know, he's, I still don't know if he's an everyday player with the DH. Uh, he might actually be the Nationals' best hitter, though. Justin yeah. Smoke, you mentioned it, 208 batting average and a 406 slug. Last year, his expected batting average was 250. His expected slug was 495. Don't sleep on Ryan Braun either. I, I would say yeah. the 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 trio of Avisael Garcia, Ryan Braun, and Justin Smoke all pretty much gain value across the board here for the Milwaukee Brewers. Let's talk about some of the losers here uh, because of the universal DH. And Chris, you touched on this a little bit at the top when you just mentioned, you know, player valuation in this shortened season. And Madison Bumgarner, Zach Wheeler, Aaron Nola are three that stand out to me. And I know that you did some research on this, but they lost a, they lose a decent amount of their strikeout percentage because they are not facing the opposing pitcher anymore. So Madison Bumgarner, loses 11.6% of his strikeout rate from last year. That came against pitchers. He loses that. Zach Wheeler lost 8.4%, and Aranola will lose 8%. So those are three names that pop out to me that lose a decent amount because they're not going to be facing the opposing pitcher, Chris. Yeah, I, I actually, I'm trying to find the research now because I did look at what they did overall, and then once you take out pitcher, once you take out versus pitchers and... Yeah, I think the, the so the biggest loser in raw strikeout percentage last year, Merrill Kelly lost 15% of his strikeouts. Well, that doesn't really help us all that much. But then you do get to an interesting, a couple interesting names in, you know, the fourth heart, largest percentage of his strikeouts came against pitchers, Madison Bumgarner, fifth, Steven Strasburg, sixth, or sorry, fifth, Steven Matz, excuse me, Steven Matz, not Steven Strasburg, uh, and seventh, Mike Soroka. So those were all guys who lost. Uh, right around 10 to 12% of their total strikeouts. Um, you know, obviously that creates a different number for each player because Madison Bumgarner has a higher strikeout rate than Mike Soroka. Uh, but generally speaking, those were among the biggest losers when you take out pitchers. That being said, it's, we don't know whether that's going to continue to be the case moving forward. That, that This is the kind of thing that, you know, you're dealing with 50 plate appearance sample sizes for the most part. Yeah, about, about 50 to 60 for every day for every five day starter. So you're talking about a very, very small sample size where, you know, if Madison Bumgarner gets three extra strikeouts against a pitcher, it can skew the numbers pretty dramatically uh, and it might not necessarily be meaningful. So what I would suggest you take away from that isn't that you need to discount Madison Baumgartner X percent or Mike Soroka X percent, but is to keep in mind that what he did last season did feature that as well. And so, you know, it, it might've been a little bit inflated. That's one of the ways in which their performance might've been inflated. And in Baumgartner and Soroka's case, I think there's pretty universal agreement that their production was inflated already. And so this might already be baked in to their expected production in 2020. I don't ever want to completely just cross a player off my draft board and say I won't draft him because everybody has a price, but I, I'm pretty close to that point with Madison Bumgarner. Moves away from AT&T Oracle Park. Uh, his career there, 2.72 ERA last year, a 2.93 ERA at home in San Francisco and a 5.29 ERA on the road. Of course, moves over to the Arizona Diamondbacks now, so will not have the same ballpark that he's pitched in for so many years. Uh, Scott, are you factoring this into your rankings or how you're, you're valuing pitchers much, if at all? Not really. Um, I basically agree with what Chris said. And I mean, for the, the, the specific pitchers we're talking about, there, there are just other factors, I think, that outweigh that, outweigh the amount of strikeouts they had against pitchers last year. Like, for example, I'm moving Bumgarner and Wheeler down a little bit, or I already have, 
because like they were guys who earned their ranking largely on just accum- accumulation, the fact that they were going to out accumulate other pitchers ranked in the same range over a 162 game season. Uh, and obviously that that is off the table. I mean, they might still pitch deeper than like a Jesus Lazardo on average, but they're going to make the same number of starts now. And I think it's pretty clear to me, I mean, to the extent you can say this about a rookie, that Luzardo is going to have better ratios. So uh, it's, it's easy to move guys like Bumgarner, Wheeler down. I mean, Trevor Bauer move him down kind of for the same reason. So I, I'm not even like that happens before you even get into any thought process about strikeouts against pitchers and, and you know just because of the way the starting pitcher position breaks down there's only so much you can move them down here's uh, the oh sorry well i was going to comment on a few of the others but go ahead if you're playing off that point well i, I just wanted to throw out another uh data point that i just discovered that might it's definitely worth discussing um 1995 the last time we had a player strike from the numbers that I was able to find pitchers averaged 4.8 innings per start in the month of April. Now that was only six days. I think it was April 25th was opening day. Uh, So it was only six or seven days worth of numbers, but you know, it was 6.1 in April of 1994 and 5.8 in April of 1996. Um, And I think even in May of 1995, it was still like 5.8. So it was still significantly lower than you would expect. So, there's also a possibility that we're talking about all pitchers averaging four innings per start in the month of July or for the first few weeks of the season, which, you know, at, at that point, maybe, maybe I'm not even being optimistic or pessimistic enough in moving pitchers down. Maybe it's a situation where it's time to start thinking about relievers as, you know, a significant part of your plan as well. It's hard to say, like we don't, because it's not, it's not a perfect analog. 1995 players had no contact with their teams up until like April 3rd. And then the season started April 25th. So they basically had three weeks to rush through a spring training. Whereas in this scenario, we had a week and a half of a spring training. Then we had, uh, you know, four months, I guess, of nothing, but players still working out and they've been able to work out in team facilities for the last month. And then we'll have a, a training. So it's not a perfect analog, but that number did stand out to me when I just looked it up. Yeah, I, I think I, I think it's safe to assume the average league wide will be lower for that first month. But I think the level how how established the pitcher is. I mean, specifically somebody like Madison Baumgartner, like he's not going to allow himself to be pulled after four innings. Um, if he's going well, you know, I mean, maybe his first start, but not his third start, you know, like that, that's going, it, the, the ramp up is going to happen much quicker for pitchers like that, who have, who have some say over their own, uh, their own workload, I think. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's a point in Madison Bumgarner's favor. I mean, obviously I, I think more of guys on the high end, like Verlander and Scherzer, uh, you know, maybe they could distance themselves even more from the pack in that way. But, you know, that's, that's obviously it's all just speculation because we've never seen anything like this before. Yeah. The Greg Max only threw five innings in each of his first three starts in 1995, 63, 87 and 66, 67 pitches in his first three starts. That's, that's interesting. That's sort of interesting. Yeah. I mean, you take yeah. his, you know, I, this is actually kind of working out, perfectly in the 1995 uh, analogy because this season's probably going to start July 24th through 26th, something around there. They started April 25th. This season's going to end at the end of September. Theirs ended at the end of June. You know, Greg Maddox made 12 starts through 87 innings, so less than six innings per start. And he was the historically great version of Greg Maddox that he's always been had a yeah yeah that was that was prime Greg Maddox like yeah had no PS weird for him to go less than seven innings yeah had no PS below 500 allowed in those 12 in those 12 starts in in 1995 and even he uh or I guess my math is kind of wrong on that he was just above six innings per start in that stretch uh eight 12 times six is 82 72 
Oh God, he oh, seventy-two. Man. All right, so he yeah, man, don't yeah, I, I was wrong. He was around seven innings per start, but uh, <laughs> he was above that the rest of the season. I guess would be the way to phrase that. Uh, the, uh, just go away from me. Our resident, I need, I need some time to reset my brain. No, I got so he did win five innings in each of his first three starts. That part was yes, okay. Yes, our, yes. our resident mathematician Chris Towers is uh, having a little bit of a brain flub. We'll take a break there. When we come back, we'll look at the winners and losers regarding injuries and scheduling and divisions. We'll do that when we come back here on Fantasy Baseball Today. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Worn by players like Michael Harris to meet the demand of elite ball players, the New Balance Fuel Cell 4040 V7 is a versatile option. The 4040 V7 is built for the athlete who needs responsiveness and ability to cut and run at their full speed. The model features a fuel cell foam underfoot and a synthetic and mesh upper to provide breathability, comfort, and a snug fit as you round the bases. The fuel cell midsole features nitrogen-infused foam specifically designed to propel athletes forward. Learn more about the 4040 at newbalance.com. All right, we're back here on Fantasy Baseball today. I want to take a look at some of the winners regarding injuries. Some of the players you might have forgotten about seems like forever ago, but Mike Clevenger did have a knee injury this year in 2020 and was expected to miss maybe the first month of the season. That is not going to be the case anymore. Justin Verlander, once the season was delayed, opted to have groin surgery. He's expected to be ready once, I guess, summer training gets ramped back up. James Paxton is expected to be ready. Shohei Otani originally wasn't going to pitch until May. He's coming back from Tommy John surgery. It seems like so he'll be ready to pitch. That's an interesting one, though. Talk uh, to me, Chris. Do they just throw him back into game action without that rehab assignment? I mean, there's not going to be any rehab assignment, so I guess if they want him to face live batters, this is it. that's an interesting one, I guess, that I hadn't thought about. I kind of just had assumed that, he, that Shohei Otani was going to start the season as a starter. But would they really go 22 months without him seeing a live batter in a game? I think they'll let him pitch, but it's. I think it's probably, if it's likely for anybody that they have potentially a piggyback reliever behind them, yeah. it is probably Shohei Otani. Especially the first couple of times through the order. I understand it's a shortened season. You only, you only have so much time, but uh, Otani is obviously a large investment for their future. It wouldn't surprise me if the first three or four starts, he really doesn't pitch more than three or four innings. I, I could see something like that happening for Otani. Especially if Canning is healthy, because that would give them seven viable starters. Continuing on with some of the winners, players you might have forgotten about who were injured. Cole Hamels is coming back from a shoulder injury. Rich Hill. <laughs> I remember we did uh, sleepers for each category. And Rich Hill was basically a sleeper for every one of the pitching categories. ERA, whip, strikeouts. It's just a matter of the guy staying on the field. 60-game mm -hmm. season, probably has a pretty good chance. Uh, some relievers here, Corey Knebel and Jordan Hicks, both coming back from Tommy John surgery. And some hitters that stand out as winners. Willie Calhoun had a fracture in his jaw. Uh, got hit with like a 95-mile-per-hour fastball during spring training. Uh, Andrew McCutcheon was expected to be delayed to start the season. And then Aaron Hicks is also coming back from Tommy John surgery. So, Scott, which one do you think of all these injuries is the biggest winner with the time off here? It's probably Rich Hill, right? Rich Hill is the single biggest winner, yeah. no matter what category you put him in. Injury, injured players, you know, if you're counting him with the, the new DHs. Like, no matter, no matter what way you're looking at uh, this return, risers and fallers, Rich Hill is number one on the risers list. Because, I mean, back in March... A June return. I mean, that seems so far off. Like you, you can't even. It, it's 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 a timetable that's too far out to even take seriously, especially for a guy coming off elbow surgery. But we've since received word he's going to be ready to go whenever the season restarts. So now he's, um, in terms of, you know, he, he's not looking at any timeline or 
and, and far less uncertainty too. And yeah, I mean, you look at his numbers the past three years with the Dodgers, it's, it's nice. Yeah. I mean, elite ratios, the only thing keeping people from drafting him on that level is because they couldn't count on him making more than 15 starts or so in a season. Well, nobody's going to make 15 starts this season. So that's, that's not so much of a concern either. He's a 40 year old coming back from an elbow procedure that, you know, we should don't... have required Tommy John. Yeah. Should have required. He kind of, he kind of took a workaround since he's 40 years old and obviously doesn't have time to go through the whole Tommy John rehabilitation process. So it's not foolproof. You can't, I don't think it makes sense to draft him like a top 50 starting pitcher. Uh, but a little outside of that, given the upside relative to the pitchers after that steep drop off at the position, I think, uh, I think he's an easy call. You got to take him there. I'm going to yeah. try and get him in as many leagues as I can. The thing about Rich Hill is if you just took his performance at face value, he's a top 20 pitcher. Mm-hmm. Like you would, you would be drafting him in the Charlie Morton range. Top if 10. You just took what he did over the last handful of seasons when he was on the mound. So, you know, it's sort of like what I was talking about with Giancarlo Stanton earlier in the offseason where, you know, if he's healthy, I'm very confident he's going to be very good. And it, in Rich Hill's case, you know, he's being discounted for the injuries fairly, but he's being really, really discounted. And we'll see where it ends up settling because there hasn't been that many drafts since this news broke. But, you know, he's someone who should get drafted in every single league, every single format, except for NL only. So, yeah. yeah. I said top 10, Chris, because among starting pitchers with at least 400 innings pitched uh, since 2016, his 3.00 ERA ranked 6th, his 10.6K per 9 ranked 9th, and his 1.08 whip ranked 8th. So when he's on the mound, he performs like a top 10 starting pitcher. Another pitcher who we do have some worry about whether or not he's going to be on the mound uh, and how consistently he will is James Paxton. Chris, last year James Paxton's ADP was inside the top 60. Right now, his ADP is 137. I wish Adam were here so we could talk about TapHap AMC, but do you think James Paxton is undervalued? At 137, yes. I don't think if you do a draft today, James Paxton's going to go 137th. I would yeah. guess he starts to go you know, in the top 100 over these next five weeks or so. Is that um, warranted? I can tell you, let's see, I put this together June early June. So, you know, we were anticipating a short season. It may have been, we may have been hoping for more like 80 games than 60 games. Um, But I looked at between April 1st. So, you know, April 1st, think back, that was, that was when it was clear the season was going to be delayed, be delayed Mm -hmm. a certain amount. Um, Between April 1st and June 3rd, there were 149 drafts that took place on NFBC. So a significant number. Um, uh, let me see. Who are we talking about? Paxton. Paxton. Paxton had moved up from 135 to 119, so it was de- he was definitely moving up, but he was still not getting what he deserved. I feel like. So we yeah. did we did a roto mock draft, Scott, for a 50 game season. I want to say it was early June, and he went pick 107. It's about the same range, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it's um, even at that point, he's probably still a value. Uh, yeah, I, no, I agree. I agree, especially if you, you know, what what's hurting his value too is just look at how he performed last year, and it was less than ace like. But there, that's two years in a row. To be fair, you know, we are talking about someone who, as much as I love the potential, you know, the ERA last three seasons: two point nine eight, three point seven six, three point eight two. Yeah, but you're only looking at ERA. Sure. Like, whip last was year, he was kind of bad across the board. Yeah. Yeah. And his strikeout numbers are still, I mean, elite. They're amongst the best in the leagues over the past two seasons. His 11.4K per nine is fifth best. Uh, yeah. and I, I know something Adam talks about a lot is his final 11 starts, he started using his curveball more. Uh, the curve usage went up. And during that span, he had a 2.51 ERA. So um, hopefully he goes back to using the curve uh, more here. Uh, since yeah. he had success with it last year, I, I would I would say last year he re, he more resembled like Zach Wheeler, and so that's where he's getting that's the same range yeah. where he's getting drafted. When there's much more upside, yeah, his I, strikeout I upside like is Chris so Paddock much better in terms of upside. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, 
Scott, I know you wrote an article regarding the biggest winners and losers in this shortened season, and you had some players who are returning from injury, so typically I think people's minds might gravitate towards, all right, they're winners. Aaron Judge, he's had so much time. Blake Snell, Jordan Alvarez, all these guys have had time, but yet you still have them as losers. Why is that? Yeah, so Aaron Judge, at last report, he hasn't even swung a bat yet, and that's that's going to be a test because the the stress fracture in his rib, it it just it, he needs to be immobile for it to heal, and he's had a lot of extra time, sure, but once he begins baseball activities, he could be right back to square one, and at that point. Uh, does he have enough time to recover to contribute at all in a 60 game season? Probably not. And in fact, they may even be looking at surgery. So it's very high risk there, just given the nature of that injury. And Blake Snell is kind of the same way. Like we don't know exactly what's going on with his elbow. He had uh, loose bodies removed at the end of last season, but then needed a cortisone shot in the initial spring training on the opposite side of the elbow where the UCL is. So, you know, I guess that's a little reassuring, but why did he need a cortisone shot? That's not exactly normal. And it's another situation where even if it's, even if it's kind of a minor thing that he just, you know, needs to shut down and ramp back up. Like that's the, how short the season is. It's, you're not going to have time to, to go through that kind of stuff the way you would in a normal season. Like it concerns me even more in a short season than it would in a full length season. So it's, yeah. Yeah. It's worth noting. Uh, Jim Bowden did say that the Yankees expect to have Aaron judge and Aaron Hicks uh, available for opening day. They're optimistic that they will, you know, I don't know as of yet, whether we can say that that's something we should put a ton of stock into, but that's at least what they're thinking. Um, the, the thing with Snell and Canning, you know, I think Snell is more likely to just pitch right now, like start spring training or whatever we're calling it and be out there on the mound. Spring training, is, you know, that's halfway through Mark of February through basically the end of April is kind of the injury nexus for pitchers. Like if you can get through there, your chances of actually making through the season go up a lot. Um the next five weeks are going to be kind of like that. Like if Blake Snell does make it through ramping back up pitches in three or four games and whatever the shortened spring training, I, I don't even know if we're probably not even going to have games, I guess, in spring training. So inter-squad yeah. scrimmages, whatever we see, like this is going to be really complicated. Um, we may not even have like full box scores on MLB.com. So I don't expect to No, I mean. the whole thing is going to be very odd, but if Blake <laughs> Snell does make it through there and let's say he gets to his last start, in that spring training and throws 65 pitches and has no issues from now, his stock should go up quite a bit from where it is now. That doesn't mean he's going to get through the season, but it does mean he's gotten through part of the most dangerous part of that uh, period. I, I think that's probably true for all four of these guys. And I do, since we're lumping them together under the same concern category, which I think is fair. It's, it's also worth noting a very different, extensive concern here for me if i was ranking them by level of concern it would be canning one judge two decent sized gap then snell substantial gap then jordan alvarez like i'm not really downgrading jordan alvarez for sore knees <laughs> although man he might not be ready at the start of the season but I, I think he'll probably be okay if they report july 1st and we get like a july 6th like oh jordan alvarez knees are kind of cr-, then it's just yeah. all bets are off then it's just like this yeah. dude's knees are are <laughs> ruined yeah yeah fair point i personally think blake snell is a ticking time bomb like cortisone shot in your pitching elbow but i will say that what you said regarding him chris is correct if he gets through spring training that is the biggest obstacle for him because he couldn't even get through the first spring training yeah because he had these concerns the thing that's so tough about it though is you know we're going on basically a calendar year of him having elbow concerns you know it was right around last july and uh none of them have actually been serious concerns like last year he had loose bodies removed from his elbow it wasn't structural this year he did have a cortisone shot but like scott said it was on the opposite side of the elbow from the from the ucl which is typically the big concern and so it's like and we didn't really get like a diagnosis it wasn't like he had a flexor strain like or was it 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 can't be no it wasn't 
Chris, it can't be good though. <laughs> no, no, no. That's the thing is it's not good, but it's all these little things that on their own aren't necessarily a significant concern. Like Blake Snell, there was a decent chance he was ready for opening day, even with all that stuff going on in spring training. Fair enough. Let's uh, quickly mention some of the winners and losers uh, regarding scheduling and divisions. The latest that I've seen and all along, I think what we were anticipating was that the teams will stay in their geographic location, which means they will play most of their games in division and they will also play the opposing division in the opposite league. So the AL East will face all the AL East teams and then they will also face the NL East teams. And because of this, Scott, all along, I have said, I want to focus on Twins pitchers. I want Twins pitchers because, A, they don't have to face the Twins lineup. That's already a great yep. thing. Uh, but between Jose Barrios, Kenta Maeda, Jake Odorizzi, who originally I was not in on Jake Odorizzi, but because of this, I am more apt to draft him now, and Rich Hill, they get to face the Tigers consistently, the Royals consistently. If they face the opposite division, they'll get to face the Pirates. That's all good news for Twins pitchers, Scott. It is. Yeah, they're... You summed it up nice. That division, the AL Central, is the only division with two teams in the early stage of a rebuild that should just be dreadful. Those two teams, of course, being the Royals and the Tigers. Every other division has just one. It's it's kind of amazing how balanced the divisions actually are. I was kind of yeah. underwhelmed at the distinctions between them in terms of hitters parks versus pitcher parks yeah. and just the the state of rebuild for for a team, but, but the AL central stands out in that way, having two rebuilding clubs. And like you said, the twins lineup is the only like first division lineup in that division, white Sox and Indians. They could be, you know, they could be pretty good lineups, but let's go white Sox. They're not world beaters. And, and by the way, like uh, hitters who don't like, like Indians hitters, because the Indians probably have the best pitching staff in that division, right. By a pretty, pretty good margin. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like Framil Reyes, he's going to be facing a bunch of bad pitchers in his own division. And I think that's the more significant aspect in this schedule. Yes, that's what I was going to say. Own division versus opposing division. Yeah. Cause they might, you know, they might play each team from the opposing division just once, but if you that want seems to factor almost that certain. in, yeah. If you want to factor that in, look at the, look at the NL central, there's the reds and there's the Cardinals. And then basically every other pitching staff in the NL central is, is pretty junky. So, um, you know, that that's just another slight reason to upgrade AL central hitters. And I think specifically Indians hitters. Yeah. I, I do think like Scott said, the own division is the much bigger factor. I, given a 60 game season, I think they probably shouldn't do any interleague play. Like it's just why do the travel it, you're going to play each t- you're going to travel to all these different cities to play each team once. Like it seems kind of stupid, just play your whole division, but either way, in a typical season, you play 47% of your schedule against your divisional opponents. Now you're going to be playing, you know, probably two thirds at least, maybe more. And so all of a sudden what that does is you're seeing those pitchers more, which should give the hitters an advantage, although it's, you know, given the short season, it may not be that much of an advantage. Um, but the bigger thing is you're seeing like the NL West teams, all of a sudden you're going from, what, nine out of 162 games, which is 6% or something of your games at Coors Field to probably seven or eight out of 60. You're, you're yeah. probably looking at a situation where at least 10% of your schedule and probably more as an NLS team is going to come at Coors Field. So you're going to get much more of that bump. Um, so, you know, I think all of these things are relatively small. Uh-huh. And there are other ways that they balance out. You know, you'll play more games uh, San Francisco. In, in San Francisco, which is, yeah. but, you know, ultimately these things all balance out. But when you're looking at these scheduling things, and we don't know those details yet, but once we do, that's another place where you can kind of make those adjustments at a population level. You know, maybe you move all NLS teams up or whatever, whatever the case may be. Um, so, yeah, I think that's where you start to get those tweaks, but we need a little more information. Yeah, the last couple of winners I'll mention, just based on this, I hear what you're saying, Chris. Uh, Lucas Giolito, he actually performed well against the Twins last year. 3.24 ERA in four starts against them, small sample size, but we'll get to face the Tigers and the Royals. And Scott, you mentioned Fran Mel Reyes as someone who you would want to move up the board because he doesn't have to face his own uh, pitching staff. But I think you can kind of lump the Twins and White Sox in there just because... 
facing the Tigers and Royals as much as they do will be a higher percentage of those games. And the Tigers and Royals just have terrible pitching staffs outside of Matthew Boyd, of course, who is, you know, (laughs) everyone's breakout darling. Uh, I I want to get into some emails quickly here. Fantasybaseball at CBSI.com. We've got to get to this one because Michael emailed us yesterday and he said, guys, my draft is tomorrow night, which is tonight. It's Tuesday, June 23rd. So hopefully, Michael, you have a chance to listen to this before your draft. Any last-minute sleepers, breakouts, impactful rookies I need to know about in a 12-team head-to-head categories league. Let's give Scott the rookies, Chris the sleepers, and I'll take the breakouts. Scott, head-to-head categories, impactful rookies, go. Nate Pearson is somebody I moved up almost as much as I've moved up Rich Hill, and that applies you know, regardless of the format. Um, for a categories league specifically, I think it's very likely Nick Madrigal just starts out as the White Sox second baseman now, and he could be a great source of both batting average and stolen bases, which are two categories that are hard to fill for cheap. Dylan Carlson could be a five category player and we expect him to play a lot. Uh, that would, that basically tops the list, but Mackenzie Gore, I'm interested in hearing how legitimate his chances are of making the Padres rotation, because if, 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 if he's in, he's, you know, I'm, I'm going to rank him about where I do Jesus Lazardo. I think the impact could be similar there from McKenzie Gore. Chris, you've got the sleepers. Yeah, a lot of the guys that we talked about earlier in that DH conversation, you know, Justin Smoke, and especially I think Howie Kendrick in a head-to-head categories league, you know, he could be a, a legitimate four-category stud in uh, that format. And then I'll throw out, you know, guys we talked a lot about, Mitch Keller, you know, going 256th overall, that's one that makes a ton of sense. Um, oh, I just forgot the name. I was going to say Will Myers, another guy we talked about earlier. Hunter Harvey, if you're looking for a closer candidate um, with some upside. And then uh, that's it. There are a lot. I'll piggyback off you with uh, Mitch Keller. Spoiler alert, he is in my breakouts 2.0 column, and I, and I found this little nugget last night. He threw 157 sliders in 2019, which posted a 26.8% swinging strike rate and a 50.5% chase rate. To put that in perspective, Verlander had a 24% swinging strike rate on his slider, and he had the best slider in baseball, according to Fangraph's pitch values, and a 53% chase rate. So Mitch Keller's swinging strike rate on his slider, small sample, was better than Justin Verlander. So um, mm-hmm. with Oscar Marin there, I think focusing more on those secondary pitchers, the slider and the curveball for both Mitch Keller and Joe Musgrove, two pitchers I really like. Zach Gallen, we talk a lot a lot about as a breakout. Fran Mill Reyes, we just spoke about him. Uh, in a head-to-head categories league, I typically fade steals. So Willie Calhoun, Eloy Jimenez, Alex Verdugo are all names that I think could be breakouts this season. So there you go, Michael. Good luck tonight in your draft. Although... You should not be drafting this early. You should just kind of like delay it two or three more weeks. This text was from Tony. Listening to yesterday's podcast, you guys were having a conversation about position eligibility. And Adam was talking about a league where players were only eligible at their primary position. My league is somewhat in that vein. We've had this league going back to 2003, and we have a rule that a player needs to appear at the position played during the current scoring period or the previous scoring period in order to be eligible. That means guys that are traditionally multi-eligible might not be depending on where they are playing. A guy like Whit Merrifield might still have eligibility at both second base and outfield if he is actually playing at both positions over the course of the week. So he just wanted us to touch on um, position eligibility. And we've, we've received some other questions about this as well. You know, how is this going to change in a shortened season? Do you guys have any ideas? I, those are decisions that are made by people other than us. And I, have you heard anything, Chris? I haven't, I, I haven't heard anything. I'll, I'll ask about that today. Yeah. I'm trying um, to get a definitive answer. Yeah. I mean, if, if they ask for input, I would, I would, uh, I, I don't think I would suggest changing it in season because five is already such a low threshold. You don't want the threshold to be too low and like a fluke appearance at a position where a guy has no business actually playing. Uh, he becomes eligible there. Um, but what's going to be, I think the bigger discussion is heading into next year. How many games, how many appearances at a position does it take to retain eligibility? And I, you know, 20 is the CBS standard. I, I think maybe it should change to 10. 
So, you know, if, if you're looking into that, your own league where you don't have to go with the CBS standard, that's, that's what I'd recommend is maybe keeping it five for in season, but changing it to 10 for next season. If not five, I mean, you could lower more than 10, but five is like the, the minimum I think I'd do. Yeah. I, I think I'd be okay with going three in season, 10 next season, basically, you know, this season is three fifths of, you know, roughly three fifths of a full major league season or two fifths of a full major league season. Um, so you're not quite cutting it down to that. You still have to get more than half of the pace, um, but it's still gettable. I think. Yeah. In all I, I guess three is, is probably fair. A fluke appearance one. I mean, that, that would not be good Two, just to give you some buffer three. If a guy plays a position three times, his manager probably trusts him on some level there. Um, I, I guess I could be talked into three instead of five, but absolutely no lower than that. Doing some quick math, uh, normally you need the 20 games for the next season's position eligibility. 20 out of 162 is roughly 12%, and seven or eight games in a 60-game season is right around you know, 12 13%. So you could lower it to seven or eight games for the following season's position eligibility uh, if you have the, the ability to do that in your league but that'll do it for today hopefully by the time we return tomorrow everything is set and our baseball season is good to go again 5 p.m today by the time we're recording this uh it is still before 5 p.m so you should know and if you do we'll be back with some position previews tomorrow for scott chris i am frank thank you all for watching and listening watching on the fantasy baseball today youtube channel make sure to subscribe to the fbt youtube channel bye bye